Holy Madness is brought to you by JewishCoffeeHouse.com Ich verstehe nicht. Holy Madness inflated my tires, inflated my ego, and inflated my currency. If it was not for Holy Madness, I would be a little peasant. It's Holy Madness. With sweet. You're listening to episode 12 of The Holy Madness. Welcome, welcome. You know, this one's going to kind of be calendrical. Calendrical, yes. Not relating to calenda, but relating to the calendar. Yes. What's a calenda? That's the Roman holiday. Oh. But instead of Roman holidays, we're going to be discussing a Jewish one. Yes. Purim. Purim. For those of you that have been keeping track of the old Babylonian lunar calendar, we have now reached the month of Adar, and in the month of Adar, we celebrate Purim. Yes, and this year there is only one Adar. Yes, sometimes there are two. Yeah, in the Jewish calendar, of course, we don't have February 29th ever, but sometimes we have a whole leap month. Yeah, and you thought your calendar made you crazy. So, Purim, well, I would say it's one of my favorite holidays. Everybody loves Purim, no? No. Who doesn't like Purim? Well, mostly fuddy-duddies and teetotalers. Well, why would... Oh, because of all the drinking? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, Purim's like, imagine if a bunch of Hasidim observed St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> we can dye the Jordan River, Techelet, Argaman. Yeah, Tolat Shani. Yeah. yeah, put it all in there. <laughs> well, so... Brief recap, we mentioned some of this in the seventh episode where we talked about Iran and Persia. Right. Purim is the celebration where there was this vizier. I love that word. Vizier? Vizier. I always think of a Latin. And it's always, it's always a grand one. Yeah, there's it's never... a grand vizier. As opposed to like a not-so-great vizier. Right. Like He's I, like a mediocre vizier. <laughs> the, the totally average vizier. Well, there was a grand vizier. You you would call this grand vizier, weirdly, a prime minister, because that's, that's what he was. Hmm. And it's a bit hard to pinpoint, in terms of, you know, our modern recorded history, which king of Persia this was. Hmm. As a side note to our bibliophile listeners, the name that we have in the Bible for this king is Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerosh. But that is actually a Hebraization of the Greek, uh, essentially Xerxes, as we would say it, but Kharshasta. That sounds like Kharshis would be right. something like the Greek, but it was going from Persian into Greek and then to and inter- Well, and then there's Aramaic involved as well. Hmm. So Artachshasta, which is Arta Xerxes, that sounds more became... Like Ahasuerosh, mm-hmm, yeah. although not only that, but Ahasuerosh is meant to be understood as a bit of a pun or play mm-hmm. on words of, this oh, my very, head hurts. This is very frequent with names in the Bible. Yes, they're always meant to be descriptors of personalities and uh, often to teach moral lessons as well. So we're not really sure which Persian king it was, but whichever one it was, they had uh, this grand vizier, this prime minister, whose name was Haman. <laughs> Haman. And Haman decided that he was going to kill all the Jews. As oh, many, there's an original one. Right, as many politicians. Well, he got us early do. enough in our history. Yeah, he was kind was, of the first. Actually, well, it's, 
Well, no. I mean, there was Pharaoh and whatever. He was the first in terms of... Who really wanted genocide, yeah? Yeah, but but more than that, he was the first in terms of a foreign ruling power while we were in exile mm. to do this in a wholesale way. Mm-hmm. To the point where, and this is actually something amazing, when they took Julius Streicher out to the gallows mm-hmm. after the Nuremberg trials, yeah. mm-hmm. he walked off say, like screaming kind of to himself but he screamed Purim Fest yeah and there's all sorts of weird things they hung exactly 10 people from nerving trials and they hung the 10 sons of Haman etc etc all sorts and not only that but the small letters in the Megillah in that area mm-hmm. are Tuf Shin Zion which was which the Hebrew the year. year of 1946 wow when they carried out these executions exactly so at any rate Haman decides he wants to kill all the Jews and as the old joke about all the Jewish holiday goes they tried to kill us they failed let's, let's eat, eat. Which really is only two Jewish holidays. Well, yes and no. I mean, there's definitely Passover. Right. Pesach. Except which is a, No, no. They tried to kill us. They didn't. Let's talk about it for two hours. Well, that's a Jewish meal. Yeah, except you aren't eating yet. Well, you have the little uh, potato and the salt water. Oh, yeah, sure. It's a, it's okay, a Jewish right. meal. Yeah. Oh, you had your appetizers. Now we're going to talk. There's a lot As of, a family. <laughs> there's a lot of delayed gratification <laughs> built into that. Let's eat. Yeah, well, and, uh, and there's Purim, as we're talking about. I mean, if you take the uh, jelly donuts from Hanukkah, that's that's another. Yeah, but it's not really... People don't it's make true. big festive meals for Hanukkah. That's true. That is true. I, I will grant you that. But as long as we're, you know, saying Purim Torah, jelly donuts, Hanukkah, I win. Anyway, <laughs> so you have to do this. Uh, so as we just mentioned, there's this festive feast that we have on Purim. Think Thanksgiving mixed with St. Patrick's Day because... There is a mitzvah to get drunk because, for those of you familiar with the story, all the story basically moves. This is the book of Esther. Yes, the book of Esther. The story moves on events that are lubricated with wine. Yes. It starts off with a giant wine party. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I don't want to say ends, but the fulcrum of the story certainly is another another party wine party but it, it's it's always about wine and so we i found have... out that in old english there are distinct words for what kind of drunk you are so there's beer drunk for being drunk on beer mm-hmm. and there's wind drunk for being drunk on wine well it's interesting because the truth is experientially they're very different experiences we i, I i've said i just get so sick and fall asleep <laughs> no but, but but before you do when when you're drinking wine it's very expensive it's light it's happy and when you're drinking let's say spirits it's really heavy like when people make fun of drunks mm-hmm. you know and they they slur their words and they get mad. That's that's a booze drunk. Wine drunks mm. are generally like happy and I mean, look, we'll put it this way. Mm-hmm. It's not an accident. I don't think it's an accident that, you know, all the self-deprecating jokes in America about moms and their wine. They're drinking wine. Uh-huh. It, it fits. They just want to relax and be happy for a while. And, mm-hmm. and they, they get giddy and goofy and smiley. Oh, OK. And when their husband, you know, finishes his shift... He goes to the bar, orders a three fingers of bourbon, and comes home mad. Hmm. That was a joke before everyone starts screaming at me. Anyway, so we have this big meal. We get very drunk. We also read the book of Esther and Megillah Esther. We just mentioned we do that once by night, once by day. We give gifts. There is this thing to give, but it's food gift. Yes, right. you actually give people the food that they would use in their festive meal. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. But in principle, that's what yeah. I do. 
I, I as well, but most people just get candy. Uh, very Halloween-like. In fact, it really is, because everybody gets dressed up. And the kids mm-hmm. go to their friends, and they bring them these candies, and the adults say, Oh, you look so get cute. It's nice. What do you What are you dressed like? Get dressed up in costumes. Right. I have two kids planning to be robots this year, and they're arguing about who gets to be a robot. And one of them is trying to say, Well, you be a gray robot, and I'll be a yellow robot. And mm. So I, my, my seven-year-old wants to be a baby. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, that makes uh, sense in light of your baby. Well, I'm not going to psychoanalyze it. I think it's just funny. Okay. Um, my five-year-old wants to be... I don't know. My ten-year-old wants to be Princess Sisi. Princess Sisi? Is yes. this like the feminist version of Egyptian dictatorship? You do not know Italian history, clearly. Nope. Not in the slightest. We aren't going to talk about it now. Boo. <laughs> anyway, well, the thing is, it's not really supposed to be a costume. It's supposed to be a mask. Since those mm. who have read the Book of Esther will notice, God's name does not appear once. It's very Ooh. strange that we celebrate a miracle, which is never attributed to God, and in fact, seems to occur through purely natural processes. Albeit random ones. Mm-hmm. And we will return to that in a moment because it's actually a central theme but there is a of very, the day. There is a very important name in the book of Esther which references being hidden and it's the name Esther. Esther. Which means hidden from the Hebrew root seter which means secret or hidden. Or deconstruct. So the thing is it's supposed to be a mask since God acted so to speak masked so you don't see his Aster, involvement Aster. in the story. So we are supposed to wear masks. What I usually do is I'll do something to my appearance where my measure of success is whether somebody who knows me would recognize me. And most years I actually pull it off. We should put up some. Uh, I'll happily, yeah, yeah, we'll put, put up, up some, some pictures. Of your pictures here <laughs> with your wife. You do amazing costumes. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do this year because I'm in Avelut. I'm not entirely sure I'm supposed to oh. take part. So when it comes to the to mitzvot, his mourning and so his ability, I mean the year of mourning for my mom, right? So which means it, that there are certain restrictions on parties and celebrating, right? So it's actually interesting trying to figure out what the halachot are. Because according to some, I'm not really supposed to do anything. And according to others, that's a bit ridiculous because they're mitzvot. And where else are you told not to do them? But when it comes to things like costumes or masks or whatever, these are considered, I guess, let's be kind and call it hid or mitzvah. Right. It's just like an added thing. And so this year I may actually uh, not do anything. And then there's another kind of gift giving. Which is gifts to the poor. Yes, Matanot Lebioni. And it's amazing because what this has turned into in modern times is people go out collecting and raise tens of thousands of dollars for for charities. Mm. I know people Mm -hmm. uh, who go around, around the neighborhood, collecting money to go pay off people's debts in the grocery. Wow. So that's kind of the basic overview of the day. And it behooves us to take a bit of a deeper look into the story and kind of try to tease out some of the themes. So, as we mentioned, the the story kicks off with this king. And there are a lot of references that are really, really built on people who can see the nuances in the Hebrew language in the book. We're going to present them as if they're, you know, there. Um, for those of you 
who can read Megillatus there and understand it, and it's Hebrew, see the references, great for those of you who can't, so we're telling you them anyway. So it starts with this king, and he's not really yet the king. I mean, he has the title, he has the office, but he doesn't quite have the people's support. And he wants to win everybody's support over, so he makes this big party. First for everyone in the realm, and then for everyone in his city. The capital is very special, extra party. So he opens up the palace to everyone. Which is, imagine if the president were to invite all of America to the White House. Somehow this is supposed to solidify his kingship. Well, what he's doing is he's politicking. In a very populist way. Well, he created the first political party. (laughs) No, but that's really the point. I hear, I hear. And, And at this party, so he brings everybody in and they have this nice thing he shows off all the wealth of the kingdom and of course you know he's he's uh, pumping hands and uh, holding babies and telling everybody you know this this is all for you and this is all everything is us and, and everybody know. everybody gets a wine of his selection and nobody's forced to drink and right not only that but they're given things as gifts far beyond their means and uh you know everybody has whatever they want to literally to their heart's content And then he brings in the people in the capital. Now, using our example, this would be the president inviting everybody to Washington, D.C. This is when he tells everybody living in Washington, now we're going to do this for a little while, just us. I understand the people living in the capital are the movers and shakers. Mm -hmm. They are the NGO heads, you know, and the lobbyists. Mm So this is this is meant to be this is this is more of a pressing issue. Everybody had a good time and now I want you guys to know you're special. In the in the Talmud, they bring this up at the beginning and they say, Well, hang on a second. You would think you should do it the other way around. First you solidify your power base mm-hmm. with the power people, and then you bring in the riffraff. So you get the impression, and that's what you were saying a second ago, he's really a populist. Yeah. This way also he utilizes a kind of jealousy. The movers and shakers before could have felt threatened. Like, I'm just like That's everybody That's part else. of the question. And now he lets them ask that question. He lets them boil with that for half a year. And then, here we go, guys. Come on in. At any rate, and in the middle of this party, he has he, he tells his wife to show up. There have been separate parties for the men and the women. Separate, yes. They're in the same building. Okay, but the point is that the women are having a party, too. Yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm stressing that. Party. I'm stressing that because you get the impression that if you're warehousing everyone under one roof, mm. separate is kind of a permeable line. As he demonstrates As by he announcing, yes. I'm going to show off my true treasure. Right? Mm. Send, send everyone through the treasury, showing off all, his, all the wealth and all the stuff. And then he goes, now, let me show you my wife. Now, hold on, because... Ahasuerus was an upstart king, and that's why he's still trying to become king. Right. And Vashti was actual royalty. All right, Vashti is his wife. We haven't actually identified her yet. Yes, so Vashti. Vashti, at least according to our tradition, was of the Babylonian kingship descent. The Persians uh, rather usurped the Babylonians, and she apparently was a holdover from the royal line and so she represents a certain uh, Dignity, element of royalty. kingship itself mm-hmm. right continuity with the great empire and so she sends back i'm not coming now for whatever reasons she does this 
the king obviously has a little bit of egg on his face. Yeah. So he doesn't really know what to do. And this little upstart uh, advisor stands up and makes this grand political theater where he announces, you know, the queen didn't just insult Wait. the king. This is this is a really important element of the Megillah because he brings out that there's a problem and then he solicits ideas. So everybody can throw out ideas now. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of chaotic democratic process going on. Everybody can voice an opinion and then he selects the one idea that's going in a direction that he wants to go. So he tosses out looking for ideas. What are we supposed to do? The queen rebelled against the king. This is a bad precedent to set when you're trying to impress everybody. And this young whippersnapper, I'm saying he's young. I just, he's, he's the last one listed in the list, which gives you the impression he's the least important. And so he stands up and he creates this political theater, which is meant to give the king a way out, but it creates a farce. Because what he does is this. He says, you know, the queen didn't only rebel against the king. The queen, she has made even bigger problems. I mean, the way our Rebbe puts it is the Murphy Brown defense, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking women and you're giving them ideas. We won't have an empire if women have ideas. It's great we're coming into this after the social justice episode. <laughs> <laughs> so... So the way he says it is, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the people in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Because the queen, what the queen did, that's going to go out. And all the women in the kingdom, they're going to hear about it. He's magnifying the problem. This isn't just one woman's action against one man. This is Think of the effects on the family. Before you know it, anytime a husband says anything, you know, can, hey, sweetie, can you bring me the orange juice? She's going to say, Queen Vashti didn't listen to her husband. I don't have to listen to mine. And so she says, if it pleases the king, we now need to send out a royal edict. And it'll be written into the laws of the country. We're, we're going to make new laws now that can never be revoked. Okay? And we'll get rid of her. We'll, we'll have a new queen if need be. So what's this law they send out to all the land? All wives must show respect to their husbands, great and small alike. And so the king and his assembled officials say, hey, this is insane, but it might just be insane enough that it'll work. So that's what they do. And so they send out, and this is uh, another theme you'll find in the book, in the Megillah as well, that they send out these laws to each province in its own language so that there's no questions that every man shall be the ruler of his own home and the home shall speak the language of the husband. Now, you and I have both married women from other countries. And imagine... In different languages. Yes. And imagine if there was now a law that they had to speak our language. Obviously, my wife lived for long enough in America. She speaks English English. just fine. But imagine if we had to force Devorah to only speak in English. It would be a mess. <laughs> it would be hilarious. <laughs> so so this is just the opening of the book. And over here sets in motion. We'll go a little, a little faster for a bit. Kind of jump in and jump out of the detail. So this sets into motion this whole thing where now the king is, is very lonely. And when he sobers up and realizes that he killed his wife, that he actually liked a lot... 
because of this mm. insane thing of you know turning her into a, a sacrificial lamb. Yeah. No, it was more than that. It be it, she became the only way out based on what this guy said is to make the queen the fall person for this you know family values push that is suddenly the only way he can save face that his wife kind of smacked his if he had gotten to dictate this top down what he was going to do then he probably wouldn't have had this outcome he would have had some other way of dealing with her to establish himself as king but not to get rid of her because he actually liked her i i would say that before this blew up into this kingdom-wide issue so yeah like you're saying look there's a hundred ways you can deal with this you can have the queen issue a strongly worded pr statement saying how sorry she is and of course you know the king is the most important and dear thing to her etc etc and the truth is everybody at the party was royally drunk nobody was gonna gonna remember remember this but so he so now he's stuck he doesn't have a wife he's he's lost his big populist push has ended in a very stupid law being put on the books <laughs> that makes him look like a fool. Just to jump back for a moment to episode 7, where we talk about the way that the Persian Empire was set up and how each of the sub-communities was given its own integrity and its own ability to govern itself to some extent. So here he's relating to that by sending out to each of these areas in its own language But then there's this sort of double back on that where it's like, we're going to reach into your individual families and tell you. Right. And we're going to literally tell you how you can talk. Has to be the husbands. They're policing speech. And so at this point, we're introduced to Mordechai. Yay! And he's this Jew guy who's living in the capital. Who just happens to be named for a Babylonian god. Yes, Marduk, oddly enough. We are introduced to him that he is actually somebody who went into exile from the first temple about 50 years or so after the destruction of the first temple. And so he had come along with the exile, although he came along with them. He was not one of the people who were exiled. He went what does that mean? along with them. If you look carefully. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I noticed that. Yeah, it's a crazy way to say it. What he went as a lobbyist. You're saying that he could have stayed in Eretz Israel. He could have stayed in the land of Israel, but he went along. Depending as... how you date this, he may mm. very well have. He was there with Ezra. So if you date this to be before Ezra, mm-hmm. fine. But if you take the references to Shamshai in Ezra to be Haman's son. Then he was, he came, he went he, back and forth fairly often. He could be the representative of Ezra in Shushan, you're saying? Something along those lines. Okay. He's a lobbyist. Interesting. I'm always fascinated by this that he's from the tribe of Binyamin, Benjamin, but he's identified as a Yehudi. That's an argument. Gemara takes it both ways. Ah, okay. It ends up with what you're saying, but mm-hmm. they're different mandamrim on both sides. But anyways, and so he had this uh, niece whose parents died. His Her father died after conception. Her mother died after childbirth. And so she never, not just didn't know her parents, but she kind of didn't have. Was completely bereft of family. Right. And so he raises her and eventually marries, marries her, her, which is a bit weird, to put it nicely. But they loved each other. 
seems they did. But if that happened in modern days, would you accept the girl saying, but I love him? If you had a major government official marrying his niece after raising her, I'd say that's material for a scandal. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's a bit weird. Yeah. At any rate, and so at this point, the king is looking for a new queen. They set up what seems to be a beauty pageant, but is actually a state-sponsored kidnapping of all women of marriageable age. Because, according to the rules, if you're with the king, then you can never be with anyone else. And so any woman who got a chance to try being the queen and spent the night with the king was stuck. So we have Persian rape culture here. Well, this is this is more than just plain rape culture. This is governmental sponsored sponsored rape fest and executed at any rate so she gets caught up in this in this dragnet and so she gets to be taken in front of uh the king and sure enough she's this great girl everybody likes her and the king loved her too and before you know it she's the queen and then the next thing is and then they decided to bring more girls and do this again and so why would they do that? Why would they do that? And the reason is given almost uh, backhandedly is because Esther never said a word about who she was. So she's just this mystery girl. So we have a very insecure king here. At the very opening of the Megillah, we have that insecure might not be the word at this point in the story. He's paranoid. <laughs> right. You have this whole theater that was set up at his party robs him of his wife now they're drafting new queens for him he finds a girl he likes and no one knows a damn thing about her that seems pretty suspicious he hosts a big party to solidify his kingship he doesn't know the laws so he has to solicit opinions in order to figure out what he's supposed to do he's going mad because he doesn't have a wife anymore so he has to bring in all these women he Dismisses them left and right. He finally comes to Esther. He selects Esther. But now, because Esther's not giving him all the information he wants, he's going to do the rape-fest selection again. Well, well, here's the thing. It's that he just... How can you trust her? I mean, look, would you put in the palace somebody that you don't know who they are or anything about? But sure enough, uh, that doesn't really go anywhere because the truth is it was really just to make her jealous. And it didn't work. And so he's like, look, I like her. And that's the end of it. And so, conveniently, around this time, Mordecai, whose niece slash ex-wife, and the ex is in parentheses because it's not like they got divorced. At this point, Mordecai overhears this plot to kill the king and sends it to his woman in the palace. And she tells the king and they investigate. And sure enough, the plot is uncovered. And they kill the conspirators, and that's that. And now steps in Mr. Villain. And so as after all these things came to pass, suddenly the king appoints this guy as his, and here's my favorite title again, Grand Vizier. And this guy is a real piece of work. What do we see on the face of things that makes him so bad? Well, for starters, when I say he's a piece of work, there's actually quite a lot of Jewish history being played out here because this guy just so happens to be the great-great-great-grandkid of the Amalekite king that Saul decided to leave alive one extra night. And in that night, this Amalekite king fathered 
a child that would eventually have children, eventually have children, blah, 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 and turns into this to guy. Haman. Right. Haman. Ah! Yeah. Well, oh, we forgot to mention that. When we read the Megillah, Book of Esther, in the synagogue on Purim, so every time they say Haman's name, everybody ah! does that. They scream, shout, and make noise, and like drown them out, and it's something cute for the kids, and it drives me nuts, but what can you do? And that is what Mary Simcha is doing. Anyway, so he's a real piece of work because he's given, essentially, free reign in the kingdom. This is the first thing that's made very apparent, to the point where everybody will bow to him. In other words, he really is the embodiment of the king's power that... If he walks by, you are supposed to bow to him. And of course, there's one guy who doesn't, and that would be the Jew, who only bows to his God. And this made Haman so Even though mad. under the circumstances, he would be permitted to bow to Haman. Right. But he didn't, because... He's trying to make a statement, yeah? That is definitely a part of what he's doing. And the other part of what he's doing is he's, he's kind of turning himself into a caricature. The Jews bow to no one. Mm-hmm. even if it's just this one Jew. And that's actually the point. It really is just that one Jew. Everyone mm-hmm. else is doing this. Yeah. But he won't. And this made Haman so mad that he logically decided that he should murder all the Jews. And by mm-hmm. logically, I mean not very logical at all. So, and, and the way the book puts it is, is is hilarious. It's like, well, it seemed kind of beneath him to only kill Mordecai. So he figured he'd take out the whole people with it. And this is literally the equivalent of, you know, some some mover and shaker in uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? And there's this, I don't know, there's this secretary on staff. And I forget, there's this lobbyist. that every time he walks by him in the Capitol, the Man, guy... that guy pisses me yeah, off. Yeah, he, he, you know, he just brushes me off. I think I'm going to bomb Guatemala. <laughs> because he's Guatemalan. Right, because he's Guatemalan. Well, anyway. And so he, but not only that, he decides, and this is the weirdest thing of all, he doesn't just make plans to kill everyone, which he could, considering that he can do whatever he wants. He decides to do this by lottery, which is the weirdest thing. And the word for lottery is? Pur, which is where we get Purim from. And so not only does he do a lottery, he does the lotteries for days and months, so this is completely random, right? So he does his lottery and he comes up with the 12th month, which is Adar. Now we have in the Gemara, in the Talmud, that he was very, very, very happy that it came out in Adar because... Yes. Because it's the month that Moshe died. Moses died in Adar, in the 7th of Adar. And, of course, what he failed to recognize was that... It's also the month that Moshe was born. Moses was born and died on the same day, which was the seventh of Adar. And so... But, like, why does that even matter? Right. Like, why would this make a difference to him? And so he goes to the king and he presents this interesting conundrum, if you will, where he says, you know, Mr. King... your grace, honor, venerated guy. There's this there's this people in your lands. And this is so classic. We hear this from anti-Semites all the time. It's literally the same words. And I'm going to do them in Hebrew and English, actually, because it's so amazing. Yesh no am echad. There is this one people. Mifuzar u miforad beinamim. And they are scattered and dispersed amongst all the peoples. In all the countries under your kingship. 
Now, their laws are different than everyone else's laws. Mm. And they don't listen to your laws. It's not worth it for you to tolerate them. So if it pleases you, king, why don't we write a bill into law that we should destroy them all? By the way, I'll also pay you 10,000 talents of silver and put it in the treasury. If it wasn't enough for this to be in your interest, let me make the let deal sweet Let me make it even you. more so. And so the king, and this is very much in line as Meir Simcha has described in how he does things, never answers him. He simply takes off his signet ring and hands it to Haman. You do what you want. So here's the opportunity. Take the ring, write the law, stamp it, and that's what it is. And then, of course, he tells Haman, you don't want a paper trail. You know, the journalists find out that you were paid off for something. It's bad. So he tells Haman, listen, that 10,000 silver, do what you like with it. And the people, do what you like with them. I'm not getting involved. Is there a specific reason he doesn't want to get involved? Yes, because he can always claim plausible deniability, which is exactly what he does later in the book. So he's specifically concerned about... Public opinion, which goes very Uh well in hand with a man who is dependent on public opinion. And so... The king's scribes are called in, and Haman dictates to them exactly what it is, and of course they word it in a way which doesn't say anything at all, and they write it, of course, in each province, in their language, in their script, you know, the actual alphabet that they use, and it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and to the people it was sent, and it was signed to the king's ring, and the letters were sent by courier to all the provinces, of the king to destroy, slay, and exterminate all the Jews from young to old, children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder all their possessions. The riders go out quickly. We mentioned in episode 7 how this they had this whole highway system and mail system set up to run the empire, so this is what's happening. Yeah, They're sending off these couriers, and the edict is announced. And so... Everyone in Shushan, this is actually something very interesting, because in Hebrew, we read the following sentence with the tune of Lamentations. Yeah. And so everybody thinks it means the word means sad, but it doesn't. It means confused. What? Who thinks it means sad? Bocha. But it's like more nevochim. Yeah, well, more people know the word bocha than they know about Maimonides. At any rate, the word just means confused. And you'll notice it doesn't say the Jews are confused this is the capital sitting there going are they serious you have this beautiful empire you, you i mean and by the way the juxtaposition is hilarious you were all worried about family values mm-hmm. and now you're going for genocide well that's just confusing why single out those people right it doesn't say any reason for it it just goes okay everybody and so on that day uh, get your weapons and Seems, Have yourself a slaughter. It seems to threaten the whole kumbaya, we all belong together. Right. Ethos. And so everybody's sitting there and they're just baffled. Yeah. Moving on, for those of you that have been speed reading and following along, we're now in chapter four. Paragdalad. Mordechai finds out what had actually happened, being a slick lobbyist and a man of palace intrigue. And he has some pretty good sources on the inside. Mm-hmm. So he knows <laughs> like what Esther. happened. 
Right, but you'll notice again in Hebrew, Mordechai Yadat Kol Asher Naasa. He knew everything that happened, uh-huh. all of it, not just what was written in the law, but how it came to happen. Hmm. And so he goes into public mourning, has all the Jews take on these symbols of mourning and to do some kind of and repentance. He's demonstrating outside the palace. Well, as close to it as he can come, mm-hmm. because it's actually a giant affront to the king to show up there in signs of mourning. Right, well, Esther tells him, you know, pack it up, you can't do this. Right, so that's the next thing, exactly the next thing that happens. Esther sends these messengers with clothes, and uh, he says, no, 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 thank you. And so he goes, and he tells Esther, listen, you need to go to the king and get rid of this, okay? This is not, this is like not a joke. This is all the Jews, and they're going to die, okay? And she sends back to him, and in the Hebrew, it's it's beautifully Stand sarcastic. With us. Yeah, basically. No, but, but but that's actually how how he says it to her. Go and beg, mm-hmm. right? And she sends back to him this like beautifully sarcastic <laughs> message of, "I'm not sure if you know how things work around here, but any man or woman that approaches the king without being summoned is shot." In case you forgot, we're talking about Mr. Paranoid. Yeah. Who also, by the way, I may add, has no problem murdering his wife. Okay? So if you're going to rely on, Ooh, sweetie pie, honey, I want to talk to you. I'll be dead. Okay? So I haven't been called to him at all for the last 30 days. This one's always baffled me. 30 days? Yeah. What's going on that he has, he's alone? He has a whole harem. Yeah, but this is a woman he loves. Why would you not call her? You know, relationships go up and down. Yeah, I guess so. Oh, lucky king. It's good to be the king. And so Mordechai says, you know something? You're right. It's not how the words go, because most people reading it don't realize that there's a shift in what's flying, but there's is actually sea change. And what he says back, he doesn't send back, well, you know, what do you care about your life if we're all going to die? You think he's, It's not what he says. He says, listen, uh, if if you're quiet, I guarantee you that we'll be saved another way. Actually, from another place, is the words he uses. Right. But you and your father's house will be lost. And who knows? Maybe this is why you became queen. So everybody seizes on the second half of that and goes, oh, oh this is why you became queen. That must mean that you're, you know, God placed you here and this is your mission. But it's not what he's saying at mm-hmm. all. This is your Cause, purpose. Because the first half is the, is the opposite. Mm-hmm. Listen, you don't want to yep. do it. Don't. We don't need you. Don't go save the Jewish people. Right. The Jewish people don't need you for none. We have our breed. We have our covenant with God. If God wants to take care of us, God's going to take care of us. But this could be your accomplishment. This could be you. This is your chance to... To do something. To become yourself. Yeah. And so she says, all right, well, if it's all about me, go have everybody fast. For me. For me. Not for themselves. Not for, you know, to get God's favor and grace. No, no, no. And to today, that's called Tanit Esther. And we keep the it. fast of Esther. Yeah. I mean, we don't keep it on the day that it happened, which, because we, we can't. Oh, because it was the Seder. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was a Seder. It's actually very weird, by the way, why we keep it at all. Because the day that we keep it is in Megillus Tainus as a Yandiv. It's Yom Nicanor. Oh, that's funny. But, wait, which one came first in history? Yom Nicanor was by Cheney? Yeah. Tainus Esther is a very recent phenomenon. If they put Yom Nikonor in as a Yantif on Yudgimu Adar and the Bayit Shani, that's a good sign that nobody uh, was fasting the day before Purim. So Tainus Esther only came around after that. And I have no idea where or when it came from. Yeah, that's funny. I, I've been dying to find out. Anyway, 
So that's what happens. Everybody fasts for three days, and she does too. And she goes to the king, and the you know, and the king's sitting there, and and he sees her standing there in the courtyard, and he stretches out his scepter and says, you know, okay, don't shoot her. And she goes, okay, Esther, wow, it's so nice you came to visit me. Uh, what would you like? Up to half the kingdom, and I will give it to you. Half the kingdom, up to half the kingdom. Yeah. Well, I mean, otherwise, A, she'd be king if she had more than half. Mm-hmm. But it's actually a, a pun, as the Talmud tells us, where it's up to the thing that will split the kingdom, which is a reference to the ongoing temple. attempts to rebuild the second temple, which Mordecai was a lobbyist for, and the process wasn't going very well. And so she says, well, I wanted to invite you to a party. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Well, that's nice. You came to risk your life, right? <laughs> We're going to shoot you if you come here. Because he knows what, what's going on, too. He knows the risks. Yeah, and for a party. And she says, yeah, but uh, I want to invite you and Haman. Hmm. And he says, okay. So they come, and he says, okay, Esther. So if, you're, if you're the king, this has to get you thinking. What does she want? And, okay, so they're sitting by the party, and King and Haman, and they're drinking wine, and it's great, and King says, okay, so uh, what do you want? And she says, well, um, how about you and Haman come to a party to, again tomorrow? Hmm. Which you have to understand is, like, stupidly <laughs> lunatic, on. because, like, these are busy men. They're mm-hmm. running a kingdom, mm-hmm. and you're inserting yourself as playing tea with dolls in in the Oval Office of the Empire, right? So we, we, we cleared our schedules to come to your party. Now tell us what you want. I just want you to come to another party. Eh, maybe I this just time. want to be with you. Right. I want some Attention. special time together with Haman. With Haman, right. And that's the part that says, what the hell is going on? And so that day, Haman is really happy. Not only was he invited to party number one, he's invited, he's invited to, to party, party number, number two. two. And he goes home and he calls all his uh, advisors and his wife, who is apparently his chief advisor, which, uh, going back to the beginning of this book, is hilarious. Mm. You know, uh, the man runs the home and, uh, and uh, yeah, and he's in charge. And, uh, and especially according to our tradition where the little whippersnapper, Mamukhan, who said that at the beginning, is Haman. So you get the idea that he's talking from experience. Yeah. You know, he doesn't run his own house, so we're going to make a law. That, ah, now I'm in charge. So he calls his, his wife and he tells them about how great life is and, you know, all his money he's got and his bunch of kids and the power, and he says, and you know, you know what the, the cherry on the top is? The queen has invited nobody but me to this party with her and the king. Do you think Zeresh is feeling a little jealous? Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, and you know something? None of this is worth a thing as long as I see Mordecai still sitting there at the gate of the palace. This man is a psychopath, yeah. right? So we have a paranoid king. And we have, how would you characterize Haman? A megalomaniac. Megalomaniac. Except he's got an Achilles heel for this one guy that if he, it's actually, it's, it's almost Freudian, like the father figure. If you don't give me the adoration and the uh, adulation that I want, mm-hmm. then, then, then I have nothing. The only thing that matters to him is Mordecai's approval. <laughs> this is incredible. And so Zeresh looks at him and says, uh, 
that's your problem. So just put them up on a gallows. In fact, make it a big one. And didn't we already say that before? I mean, that's why he's going to kill all the Jews. Right, because he didn't want to only kill. But this is the point. She's kind of telling him you're a bit of an idiot. <laughs> if this is all that matters to you, then bump him off. Yeah. Like, what are you getting involved in all this other stuff? But anyways, make this giant 50 cubit tall gallows, this is 180 feet or so. And, uh, no, about 130 feet or so. And, uh, you know, hang him in the morning. And then you'll go to the party tomorrow afternoon pretty happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's all you really need is just to hang yourself a Mordecai. And so... When my wife does a women's Megillah reading, this is the section that she reads. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's so beautiful. And in, uh, in the... La, 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 ah, but in the Italian news sentence... Uh-huh. Right. It's funny. You can hear the similarities across the mm-hmm. yep. the different uh, places. So and so that night, weirdly, another wild coincidence. And what as look until now has seemed to have been a book of nutty coincidences. The king can't sleep. And what do you do when you can't sleep? You oh. say, "Daddy, read me a story." So the king calls his uh, scribes to come read him the Book of Chronicles. Of himself. Right, his Book of Chronicles, not the one you find in the Bible. And let them be read before the king. And so, of course, they find, going back to that other weird coincidence, that, you know, this guy Mordecai actually saved your life once. Oh, yeah, we just happened to be reading this book. This section, you know. And not only that, but he happened to have saved your life back then because he happened to have overheard something and happened to have somebody in the palace. He happened, happened to pass to it along Esther, to. Who happened to mention it right. in his name. And... And, right, and she mentioned it in his name. We forgot to mention that. <laughs> okay. And so the king says, well, what do we do for him? And they said, uh, nothing. He says, nothing? nothing? That's not good. Somebody who doesn't have a favor repaid becomes your enemy. They feel slighted. They feel cheated. Mm-hmm. And as he's sitting there saying, what should we do? Weirdly, remember that Haman guy who had everything worked out like a minute ago? It turns (laughs) out, remember, I did mention he was a psychopath. He couldn't wait. He wasn't going to hang Mordecai in the morning. He was going to hang him right now. So he went to the king to get the necessary building permit at 2.30 in the morning. (laughs) <laughs> to build his 50 cubic gallows so he literally knocks on the king's there, yeah. bedroom door no but here's the point if you get to the palace and they say the king is in his bedroom go home yeah no he goes up to the courtyard and the king says hey who's that in the courtyard it's uh it's Haman. So he says oh, okay bring him in here Haman walks in the king says you know Haman, i got a question what should we do for a man that the king wishes to honor and Haman. Haman says to himself, and literally Haman says in his heart, again, this man is a megalomaniacal, I'll do that again. This man, this man is a megalomaniacal psychopath. <laughs> he says to himself, well, I mean, who would the king want to honor more than me? <laughs> and so he says, well, I think what we should do is have them bring the king's clothes and the king's horse. And put the crown on this guy's head, dressed in the king's clothes, riding the king's horse, and lead him through the city by way of one of the king's chief officers, Mm -hmm. who will, as he's drawing the horse, proclaim before him, so shall be done for the man the king wishes to honor. Now, you don't need to be a Freudian to see what this means. (laughs) This man wants to be king. 
Yeah. He wants the trappings of kingship. He wants the perception from others of the kingship. He wants to be the king. And this dawns. So if you're the king listening right. to this, man, I got to get rid of this guy. So the, it dawns on the king that this guy is really a bit of a liability. And anyways, he meant somebody else who didn't really get along with this guy as everyone knew, on account of him being a stubborn person who didn't just bow down and give the guy the honor that he wanted. So, so he let's... says, okay, he says to Haman, hurry, grab the clothes and the horse, and go get Mordechai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and do not omit a single detail of everything that you have said. Ooh. Right, this is this is the ultimate smackdown. Because... You can imagine in his in his head, he's going, I mean, I mean, really? Of all the people, <laughs> of all the people, and then of all the people you asked it to, this is a message. Yeah. The, the king has, has kind of backhanded me here, and things are a little shaky, but he doesn't have a choice. So he goes, he gets Mordecai dressed, leads him through the streets, screaming, so shall be done to the man the king wishes to honor. In other words, the guy I was about to murder. <laughs> so shall be done for the man the king wishes to honor, and I wish to separate from his shoulders. <laughs> Fifty cubits above the ground. <laughs> and Do you think that when Haman went in for genocide for all the Jews, he was doing it because he didn't want the king to know that he had it in for Mordechai personally? Do you think that a man who's got a wild secret police force wouldn't find out? I think that he would. I guess I wonder how much Haman is trying to keep secret from the king. On any level you wish to understand it, so he goes back home and he tells his wife and his uh, advisors and loved ones everything that just happened. And, and uh, they say to him, you know, if Mordechai is a Jew, <laughs> you're not going to win. You know, their God has this way of... What is that if Mordechai is a Jew? Everybody knows he's a Jew. Yeah, but they stress Zera Yehudi, which goes back to what we were, we brought up a moment ago. Which Shevet is he really from? Ah, if he's a... He's a Yehudi. Yehudi. If he's right. from the tribe of Judah, Dafka. That's one way to understand it. And the other one is, as long as... Meaning, is he, is he really on the up and up? Had he picked any other Jew out of a crowd, the answer would have just been, okay, whatever. But Mordecai is a tzaddik. He's, he's, he's righteous. He's the real guy. So, I mean, if that's really what he is, to the point where this has happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. These kind of random things don't just happen randomly. Of course, it's God. <laughs> that's what Hamas advisors are telling yes! you? Yes. So here they go, well, listen, if he's Jewish and this is what's going on, you are not going to win. It's a, it's a wild thing to say. Like, I just wonder what what did these non-Jews... Wait, 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 wait. wait. They but it? remember, this is mm -hmm. the same group of non-Jews led by the same non-Jew who went to go do a lottery to find out what month would be auspicious... To kill us. ...from God to kill all the Jews and was very happy that it was the month that Mr. Jew died in. Yes. You get the impression that they're kind of religious. <laughs> or at least they're kind of believers in God. Anyway, hmm. so they at this point, it's the morning, and it's time for that wine-fueled breakfast feast. And the king's people come in, and they grab Haman out, and they haul him off to the palace. Can't keep the queen waiting. And so they're sitting there, and uh, 
The king turns oh, well, to they, Esther. They start in the morning. Yeah, no, this is the funniest thing ever. That's wild. Well, no, because the truth is he could have done this running them through the streets in the morning. That's how I always pictured it, that he was doing Haman. That, that Haman yeah, because at night there's no, the there's no street lamps. Yeah. Okay, so I guess this is noon. Uh, but anyways, they come, they rush him to the palace. They're sitting there at this uh, feast. Let's call it brunch. <laughs> and uh, the king turns to Esther and says, Okay, Esther, so what is it that you want? And Esther makes Bambi eyes and she says, Oh, king, if I have found favor in your eyes, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted to me as my request and my people as my petition. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain and exterminated. Had we been sold as slaves and maidservants, I would have kept quiet because... It's not worth it for the loss that it would have to the king. This is one of the most cold, sharp performances. Talk about political theater, right? Where this whole thing is this setup and, oh, and and you understand where, where the constant repetition is meant to be just as farcical as really everything else that yeah, we've seen. The number seen. of repetitions in that statement is unbelievable. And, and then to end off with, but you understand if it was just that you were going to brutally put us in concentration camps, then I would never have even said anything because, I mean, it's a good source of labor for the kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they're going to kill us. And the king jumps up and he says, and you'll notice, by the way, in the Hebrew that it says, Ve'yomer melechash ve'yosh, ve'yomer le'ester, because until now they've been talking through a translator. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Wow. But when she tells That's him... A, is that in the Gemara there? Yeah, yeah, the Gemara puts in when she tells him who she was, that she's from royalty, so now she's not a commoner and he can talk straight to her. Mm-hmm. So he turns to the translator and he, he starts talking and he stops and goes, no, I can actually speak to her. So he turns to her and he says, Mi who? Which is a chiastic repetition in itself. Who is this? And who, who is what that? Is that? <laughs> that was so, that filled his heart to do such a thing. A man who is an enemy. This man, Haman. The way the words are written, you you get the impression that she's staring him in the eyeballs for the first three words. Mm-hmm. It's you. Yeah. I'm not fooled by your little, oh, Haman had the ring. As if Haman could have the ring without you knowing exactly what was going to take place. I'm not an idiot. Ah, here's the plausible deniability <laughs> that we talked about at the beginning. Right. It's as if he's sitting, oh, I had nothing to do with this. Yeah, sure you had nothing to do with this. You <laughs> knew exactly what was going on. No more playing games. And the fact that but, you just didn't happen to know that I'm from that people right. doesn't exonerate you. <laughs> For what you were perfectly happy with 45 seconds ago. And so Haman is now terrified. And the king learned lesson. You see, this man actually his personal development is amazing. He says, "I'm not going to do this twice." Hmm. So instead of responding in anger, as he did with his first wife, mm-hmm. he gets up and takes a walk in his garden. We've talked about those. Count to ten. Breathe. One, exactly. Two, three, Look at the pretty trees. Four. Let the nice soothing colors. And meanwhile, Haman is begging Esther for his life because he knows which way this is going. Of course, having been told 10 seconds ago by his advisors that he's done for because, I mean, you know, the Jews. He's got to know where this is going. Now, mind you, 
the reason that Esther is queen is because Haman, in the beginning as Mamuchan, put her there. Mm-hmm. This is exquisitely ironic. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The guy who had it all figured out, it all starts to turn around on top of him. Right. And all he really did was dig his own hole. Well, the other way, actually, it turns out. He built his own gallows. Yeah. <laughs> and so the king returns from the garden, and Haman has fallen down onto the couch that Esther is lying on, begging for his life. And the king looks at him and says, Are you assaulting my queen while I'm still in the house? You should have waited for me to leave. Right, the implication is insane. (laughs) What does that mean? I wouldn't have minded if you waited until I was gone. (laughs) And and at this point, Haman knows it's over. Hey, look at that. I never noticed that before. Yeah, it says they covered his face. Yeah, I never read it that way. Well, that's because we're used to the Chafui Rosh, the way they read it the last time around. Mm -hmm. But that's incredible. It's literally like he's a condemned man. They're just waiting for his execution. Put the black thing over his head. Exactly. Tie it up and cart him off. Yeah. Incredible. Wow. Chilling. And so one of the uh, attending chamberlains, think of him as the maitre d' of this party, says, you know, King, it's really interesting because this Helmand guy just built these gallows this morning. Uh, last night for this Mordechai guy and uh, they're pretty I mean you know it's right by his house and they're 130 feet tall I can pretty much see them from here and the king says perfect hang him on those gallows and so they hang Haman on those gallows and suddenly for the first time in a long time the king is no longer angry this is also the first time that we see the king making his own decision in the story yeah And so the story at this point, there's a lot of amazing details that we're going to gloss over here. But the story kind of wraps up with Mordechai being appointed in Haman's place. And then they kind of notice that, you know, there's a law still on the books, whether Haman's dead or alive, that the Jews are supposed to to get butchered on such a day. And the thing is, anything that's signed with the signet ring of the king cannot be repealed at all. Now that you can't just repeal it, you can't repeal it, period. So they passed a new law telling all the Jews, guys, you can fight back. Be ready. <laughs> and of course, when people find out that the new prime minister is a Jew and the queen is a Jew, most of them don't have much of an appetite for genocide anymore. Strange, isn't it? Yeah. And so. But enough do. Right. And so on that day, the Jews there take up arms. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the Jews take up arms and they defend themselves successfully. They apparently killed 75,000 people on that day. You shouldn't say that on the air. 75,000 people bring it. And so. And we destroyed half the Syrian Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go with, with uh, Khamenei, are you listening? But either <laughs> one. So, uh, so then they that day they... They make this giant party because look at that. The tables have turned. Mm-hmm. Things got flipped on their heads. And what was supposed to be the end is suddenly almost a new beginning. In fact, historically, it culminates in the building of the Second Temple. It really was Where do we a new see beginning. it here as a new beginning? We don't. That's why I said okay. almost. Okay. I said that historically, this mm-hmm. is what it turns yeah. into. But at the very least, what went from being the end is suddenly this cause for celebration they went from being this 
scattered, dispersed people that are right, to exactly. being actually, you know, I would say quite favored considering who's in We're the palace. The queen and the yeah. prime minister. And so they defend themselves. Everything's great. They hang Haman's ten sons on the gallows along with uh, another 500 people in the capital. That's 75,500. Are you listening, Khamenei? And, <laughs> and, uh, and that's kind of where... It, well, it's not exactly where it ends. They have another day in the capital to defend themselves further. One gets the idea this is a very much a active defense at mm. this point. Anyways, and then this point, they proclaim the holiday of Purim, and it has to be kept for all history and to remember all these things about uh, Mordechai and Esther and this great miracle. And then in the most anticlimactic, this can't possibly be real, ending to the book, there are three sentences <laughs> nailed on where it says, yeah. and now Achashverosh raised taxes. Oh, and all the things about Mordechai in terms of the king, and, uh, well, listen, they're written in the chronicles of Persian media. You can just open those up and read them if you ever find them. And it ends off, Mordechai was the viceroy, grand vizier, <laughs> to Achashverosh. He was uh, loved. He was great amongst the Jews and loved by most of them and sought the good of his people and spoke peace and the welfare for all of the Jews. And that's where the book ends. Right, yeah. Not all of them. It's very much intended. Yeah. People had a problem with him because if you recall, if he just would have bowed down to Haman, none of this would have happened in the first place. It's very nice to grandstand on a solution. Oh, yeah, you came out on top in the end, but you know what could have happened. And more than that, it never needed to happen. So Mm -hmm. what's this big miracle? Yeah. You forced God's hand, so to speak. Oh, hmm. you want to say it like that? I, I would suggest that. I mean, if I was around, then I'm sure I'd be thinking that. <laughs> I am now. Anyways, that's the uh, Cliff's Notes version of the Book of Esther. But the thing is this. You realize that the last sentence, by the way, Achashverosh raised taxes. We introduced him as this paranoid man that's looking for... Popular support. And what's the one thing you can't do? If you're reliant on popular uh, you support. You should never raise taxes. So this is a man who's finally grown into his own. But what's amazing is the, the, the Gemara, the Talmud, actually goes through with this the Pasuk, where, the, the verse, where it says how all the, this story of all this grandeur mm-hmm. and all these uh, great things. It says, well, whose? And there's an argument. One says, it has to do with at what point do you have to start listening to the Megillah? To be to to fulfill your 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 obligation, somebody says the whole thing. Somebody says from Ishi Hudi. Ah, okay, okay. But what's weird is they match up almost perfectly. One of the people, so one opinion is, you know who the all the grandeur and all this glory and all these great works. It's Achashverosh. The Megillah is a story. It's a celebration of Achashverosh. Yeah, which is nuts. Hmm. Anyway, this is the story of the Megillah. And I hope we've done a good point in a good job in pointing out how utterly random and ridiculous the entire story seems at face value. How the characters, which, by the way, are remarkably complex. Yes. I mean, we've done a very good job of caricaturing them. Oh, he's a megalomaniacal sociopath and he's a, you know, paranoid king. But you see, as I pointed out, there's there's character development in these stories. Mm -hmm. There's subplots upon subplots yeah um all this kind of stuff 
It's it's fascinating. I don't know if you could get that from the English, but the connotations of the Hebrew are No, that's the thing. So I actually did this once. I read it to somebody in English mm-hmm. so, who who didn't really speak Hebrew to see if it really would translate. Yeah. It's definitely not the same. Mm-hmm. Obviously, no translated book is is ever the same. But they they got a lot out of but it. But you can see, hmm. you know, and and if you're paying attention as a story, mm-hmm. I mean, look, I've said for years, this would be an amazing movie if done correctly. Yeah. Amazing. Sure. Yeah. It, it would take like five hours. Yeah, it could Screen be a, time. It, could be it would take movie, five yeah. hours. Uh-huh. But it would be amazing. So I hope we've done justice to the random nature of the book. And as we pointed out, of all the weird things that Esther chooses to name this new holiday that she has more or less invented, it's Lottery. Named after not the we were saved from this impending genocide, but named for the lottery that Haman originally uses. That was going to kill us. Because what actually fell out on this lottery, you see, was his downfall, not ours. But to name a holiday random, that's what a lottery is, is a very striking thing. And when you take how the day is celebrated almost the experience of the day so Mm -hmm. as we mentioned the costumes which are really masks and the going around to everybody's houses and then you've got to get drunk you can't stay in your right mind it's a holiday that has randomness built into it yeah and so we should focus a little bit on randomness and chaos and their place in the world and in our lives because that's Maybe the takeaway Hmm. of this holiday. And so in part B of this double episode, we'll be back to talk about exactly that. (laughs) 